Hello. Welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by Frank Meadows. Frank is a solo musician, improviser, composer, and songwriter. As a bassist and keyboardist, Frank is also a supporting musician in the bands Putter, Fust, Colomo, Bellows, Small Wonder, and, full disclosure, Lamniforms. But that's not all. When he isn't gigging, Frank books shows for artists like Kath Bloom and works part-time at Downtown Music Gallery, a record store that specializes in avant-garde jazz and classical music. Because Frank wears so many hats, I was delighted to talk to him about how all of these roles intersect, as well as his recent batch of solo releases. I hope you enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Yeah, I mean, so like earlier today, we were talking, and, and you mentioned that, you know, like, Obviously, anyone who's listening to this at this point kind of knows the situation that we're all in. And you were talking about like uh, playing some music. How are you? How are you um, managing all that kind of shit right now? Like practicing and staying active musically. Um, right now, I have a um, I have a bunch of songs that I did for a song a day in October that I'm trying to tighten up and finish um, that I've mm-hmm. been neglecting. For the last few months. It's funny because, like, I did a song a day in October that I was really happy with. Just the fact that I stuck to it for most of the month and produced a lot of material. But then the holidays hit. And then I spent the greater part of this first few months of this year uh, doing tour booking for Kath Bloom, Putter, the band I play in. This band, Sun Watchers, had a West Coast tour booked for them. And then there's a Colomo tour. That is technically hasn't been canceled in May yet, but I think in all likelihood will be. So it's it's just this crazy thing because I was like, it's kind of hit my natural rhythm anyway that I knew I was going to spend like a few, the first few weeks or I guess like two months of this year really uh, spending all my free time with like booking stuff. And now I'm back to, I was planning on doing music, more recording work in March and it's just convenient that now I'm just at home all the time. Mm-hmm. The... There's a putter record that is being quickly accelerated by all this, which has been fun. Um, my relationship with those guys has always been like a long distance music, you know, recording thing. But now I think we're all just trying to involve ourselves in the the process, um, just to have something, a project to work on. But um, I'm also just been trying to play every day, you know, all the instruments, hit them all at least once. Yeah, you play piano you play bass what else are you practicing or is it just the just those two right now i'm working on some guitar stuff too uh starting uh-huh. to get uh trying to get better at that uh, just as like a composition vehicle but yeah i mean mostly the things that i perform for people are bass and keys so it's i've been trying to keep those tight but i honestly have you know i've been lucky to still be working um three days a week now and so it's not like 24 hours a day has been at home for the last week, but um, all my evenings. But I also think it's like a thing. I've mentioned this a few times to people that 
there's this weird I think this first week of this crazy thing has like I've played video games I've been watching The Sopranos I think everyone needs to just sort of like truly veg for a second because I, I don't think it's necessarily healthy to just be like right back in like the neoliberal like productivity wheel instantly in this disruption I think it's good to sort of take some time you know and I think now totally. the, now the time is sort of leveling out that I'm starting to think about okay how's what's my routine going to be now that we, we sort of see have a clear picture of like what's actually happening you know totally I, I, I get why people have sort of jumped to immediately being like oh well now I get to you know work on my great American novel or you know make like make stuff constantly and I definitely feel like a bit of that impulse myself too like I was sort of in a lull recording these podcasts for a while and then this happened and now I feel like I'm kind of in overdrive like last night I did like a solo podcast that was like 25 minutes just like yeah. me kind of talking and I had been thinking about doing that sort of stuff anyway, but I definitely feel like this sort of this situation forced my hand. Mm -hmm. But I agree that it's sort of unhealthy or like it's one thing to make lemonade out of lemons. I think it's another thing to go around like squeezing as many fruits as you can in totally. like sort of a manic rush uh, just to like not. To, I, you know, it's understandable. People want to take their minds off uh, how stressful this is. So if, if people... You know, our generation in particular, I think, is trained to sort of like got to grind through it, you know, totally you know, rise and grind. Yeah, I think that it's definitely my line about it is in I encourage in myself, like finding places to put the energy, but not to like put energy somewhere where there isn't any energy. Like if you need to go into sort of like a depressed mode and like go into some like escapist stuff, at least for a little bit, like I think that's totally fine like everything's fine now in terms of like the amount of slack we should be cutting ourselves you know yeah you don't want to like brutalize yourself over totally this, i'm not I'm, I'm not saying this to say that like I'm, I'm actually happy with the amount that i've been working on music stuff i just i was just bringing that up because it's just been on my mind like how how we settle into this like in terms of like regimenting our creativity throughout this it's like i think we need to just be like holistically humanly about how we spend our time you know yeah absolutely it's funny as like a, a fan of yours musically or just or just like knowing you and observing you in the world you just dropped like a bunch of new material at the end of 2019 too so it already seems like you were kind of on a productivity kick for a while now and like as you mentioned you were doing the song a day and you know, you're in all of these other bands as well. So it seems like you're relatively well set up to kind of keep doing what you're doing, live gigs aside. Yeah, I actually, my life isn't, except for the live gigs and the nightlife work, my life is not like overhauled to the degree that a lot of people are. Like I have been lucky enough to be oriented towards this kind of thing. And I've done that in the past, though, to do like sheer amount of things like playing in a bunch of bands, having a few projects going at the same time, having a few jobs. And now it's sort of slowed to a more just working the record store and being at home, helping folks record, like, I, you know, doing stuff with Oliver, doing stuff with Putter. There's a record by my band Fust that we're working on finishing that is currently in Aaron's hands, but I've been uh, sort of monitoring the situation in terms of releasing it and helping finish. Things. So yeah, it's like it's um, that string of records at the end of last year was sort of a end of decade dump 
too. It's like I kind of tried to really push towards the end of last year to finish all the threads that had sort of cropped up at least since I'd moved to the city in 17. Tried to take all the little fragments and meant to start this year sort of fresh with that song, with completing that song a day and kind of being open to whatever happens next. Because it was like three records pretty much yeah. in succession that came out following. Because we, we had previously... Uh, attempted to do this podcast about your your collaborative record for Earth and Impressions. Yes, and due to some technical errors uh, <laughs> on that were entirely my fault, uh, that podcast is now lost to time. It, it it's unusable. But I really I was just going today over you know those three records that you put out and listening to them. And what I found kind of cool is that it's three pretty different parts of your musical personality in some way. You have a, a live improv album that's like two 17 minute chunks you have shorter instrumental electronic stuff that's more song sounding and then you've got another record that's like basically ambient music was that like the intention to kind of have like each of these separate projects be like a representation of a different part of your musical personality i didn't see them as companion pieces or anything i that those are it's just based on the fact that those are three parts of my musical personality that i had things sitting from them that I felt like I needed to finish. But the specifically used music is sort of a, I see as more of a companion piece to uh, another record that I have, which was the first thing that I finished after I moved to New York, which is Music for Use. Both are sort of concept albums about what me exploring like different, intentionally different approaches to ambient music. Like Music for Use is uh, supposed to be more of like a mobile sound installation piece. Like it says in the like description to be how I encouraged listening. Like it's supposed to be on like um, non-noise canceling earbuds in a public space. It was a very like, it's a very New York-y com- like companion sound environment for the city and used music mm-hmm. is um, supposed to be the idea of making you know, ambient music that is very like compositionally oriented. Like this is a piece that's supposed to be listened to as a part of an ambient environment, but like as a, piece of music not necessarily an environmental thing um and the mint condition which is the uh more songs electronic stuff is sort of me trying to uh edge towards that ambient work into more of a songs oriented practice so i'm glad that came across as like i'm trying to use those tools to start more actively quote-unquote songwriting and then from the live improv record you're talking about, I did a tour in last June that was solo bass and recorded it. And with the intention, you know, I set out from that tour being like, I'm going to release two of these, if not more, sets. I, I did that. I guess that's also a companion piece to the last solo record that I did called Towards. So, you know, both like from and towards situation. Towards was a longer tour. And I took fragments of the performances, whereas with From, I put two enti- two complete shows. Because on that tour that From came from, I uh, had the constraint that I was going to use a, a timer. And so I tried to, re- I decided that like that amount of time, between 17 and a half and 18 minutes is like my ideal length for a live improv set. So I was like, you hmm. know, y- using that. How did you settle on that? particular length just through years of doing it just had felt that that was i mean i've seen a lot of improvised music and i i i know where the point is that i get annoyed by 
the fact that people uh, feel the need to continue the length of a performance to fill some sort of idea of like how long they're supposed to play. Specifically with solo, just through observing people and with my observing myself and listening to myself, I feel like that's that's the amount of time that you should be able to express a wide range of ideas without cutting any of them short or too long. Or it's a perfect amount of time to express one idea. And I prefer to do a sequence. I actually think if you stick to one improvised idea, it can be so long. It can be like 40 minutes and that'll be great. But if you're in a mode where it's like like drone music, um, but if you have the tendency to want to express a few different ideas, I think that less than 20 is perfect mm-hmm. for me. And How did you get into improvisational music to begin with? It was through uh, studying jazz in school, and the um, the music school I went to was in Asheville, North Carolina, and it was a liberal arts school that wasn't like a rigorous conservatory by any means, but had a very unique musical community around it. And um, I was exposed to European jazz originally through this an ensemble in school called the ECM Ensemble that I played in. This is like feels like ancient history now. This is in 2012, but. Um, that was when I first started hearing records by people like Evan Parker and Paul Blay, and um, I uh, encourage anybody to listen to uh, the ECM catalog if they haven't. They don't have a chance so far. If they haven't had a chance yet to experience that in their lives, it's a very specific sound world, all very specifically curated and well produced music. That's why you're deep listening. And very soon after I started, wasn't playing in that ensemble for a semester. Um, I started a DIY space in Asheville. And ended up being a conduit for a lot of the um, touring free jazz, both international and uh, American circuits for that music and ended up playing on a lot, opening a lot of those gigs with various groups that I was in. And that's how I caught the bug. And it's been like a big part of my professional life ever since then. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just, uh, I love it. I don't know. I just, I, I, yeah, like caught the bug in college. Short answer is caught the bug in college, started booking the shows and have been tangentially involved with it in some way ever since one of the things that i i love about you as a musician is that you've got a lot of concurrent tracks running you're not just doing like really out there experimental you know if you are comfortable with me using that term i know we've had some (laughs) conversations about whether that's a a valid term anymore improvisational stuff that i think most people would find to be pretty out there but you also you know as you mentioned at the start of this conversation you're the sideman in a lot of more conventional kind of projects as well i love that you just kind of have the ability to jump from one to the other pretty seamlessly i appreciate that because I, I can get the impression from the outside that a lot of the like the the improvisational world, the free improv world especially, can be like maybe a bit insular. So do you feel like your situation is a bit unique in co- compared to the rest of the scene in that regard? I don't think it's unique. I definitely hear what you're saying about that, and I definitely feel like I've ex- maybe expressed some of that to you just in conversation in the past. But I also think you know every scene can be really insular. I don't think it necessarily is limited to the avant-garde. I actually think that, you know, the the twee kids can be equally as judgmental about stuff that doesn't fit into their uh, worldview as uh, the improv world. But I think I, I I don't know. I just think it's it comes from a philosophy of music that um, I guess it's just like I've been thinking a lot about this recently about why 
I do all of the things or like why I even got into improvised music in the first place. And I think it's just because the simple answer is that I, I just love music. And I think that if you see them as not separate as much as possible, then it, it's actually way easier. In terms of the social politics of it, I think that there's like a long history of people like uh, like John Cale and Lou Reed and, you know, like New Yorker David Byrne. Arthur Russell, these are like huge idols of mine because of their ability to be involved in both scenes. Thurston Moore, yeah, like a very problematic man, but a uh, a sort of example of like a dual citizenship that I aspire to. And I, I think that there's a lot of great songwriters. Lena Tolgren is an example of a good friend of mine who, you know, exists primarily as a songwriter, but in their just in their intellectual and artistic life knows all this stuff like comes to our record store all the time really has a, a sense of context within that scene with their songwriting. And I think that that's something to be aspired to for context. You mentioned that you work at a record store uh, for the listeners that may not be aware of what the, that record store is. Do you mind uh, breaking that down a bit for them? Yeah, actually I, I work at a, a store. I'm very lucky to work at a store called downtown music gallery, which is in Chinatown. Uh, New York City, as of this moment, still operational throughout this coronavirus uh, crisis uh, because it exists primarily as a mail order business. Um, it's been a part of the New York fabric for almost 30 years. It's doing it's, it's since tw- in its 29th year currently. I've been working there for about two years, and it is sort of a international conduit for avant-garde, progressive, modern classical. Most of the stock is CDs, believe it or not, but the vinyl has expanded greatly in the last few years. And uh, my boss, Bruce, has been around in New York since the 70s and has been like a huge witness to that uh, evolution of the community and also music at large. And he, I think he, I look up to him a lot in the this sort of genre barrier uh, crossing stuff that you mentioned because he... Uh, you know, his store has a reputation as being like the avant-garde hub, but he has turned me on to so much amazing folk music, um, like early 60s rock bands. Uh, we listen to some of the least cool music imaginable. Like he pays, he plays me some what I consider to be very, go- very goofy, but beautiful music. You know, it's not, but it's not cool. I think that's just what the thing is. It's just like, no matter what kind of music you're playing, it's like not prescribing not having coolness be the like primary prescription for what you do i think is always key and if you like put that aside you can open yourself up to so many things which it it sounds really cheesy but i I don't know experiencing that with him has really taught me a lot since you know as a part of me experiencing the city and growing with it it's like oh here's this man who is like a seminal member of this improv scene but like i know for a fact loves the kinks are his favorite band you know it's it's i can go on about it. i can gush about him but <laughs> yeah i mean i'll admit that all of this was kind of like a setup to i'm glad that you took the bait and kind of like pointed out that the idea and this is something that you've really opened my my eyes to as we've gotten to know each other better is that the idea that the people on the musical fringe are exclusionary in some sort of way is kind of total bullshit like I I actually totally agree with you that it is I I often see more like severe gatekeeping closer to the center of conventional music than on the fringes of uh the it's of the moderates man stuff. it's the uh 
the, the it's the moderate Democrats, the musical situation. It's, it's the liberals who are uh, dragging us down, right? You know, <laughs> the centrists. All these fucking yeah, twee Joe Biden types. You know, are... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, a not limited. It's it's and, and that's the same thing with with the jazz heads too. It's like if it's it's your how committed are you really to like a radical openness? And I think that the difficulty of the music or the difficulty of the listening, the high barrier of entry to a listener, quote unquote, enjoying the experience is what I think gives the perception that it's exclusionary because the actual music is not fun to listen to. Like it takes a while to get like to start enjoying it. Um, You definitely have to have to have a few gateway drugs to it. But in terms of the people's attitude, it really just varies from person to person. I mean, I think just as a standing rule. Mm-hmm. You also work as a backing musician and if not necessarily a session musician, you're, as you mentioned, you're in a lot of bands. Has that always been the case for you? I know that you were in bands in high school and whatnot. Have you always had like a lot of different plates spinning at once? Yeah, as, as basically since high school, it's been a consistently, yeah, I mean, at least one I think like when I moved to New York, the first few months of living in New York before Colomo, uh, one of the bands I'm in, started playing regularly. That was the first time I hadn't been in a like in a band since I started playing music. And the projects that I was in with the the other members of Putter before but, but years ago, I was in bands with those guys uh, pretty consistently while being in Asheville. And collaborating as a sideman with person with other people. This is the most amount of bands I've been in as like a consistent contributing member, but I've always been involved in, you know, basically said yes to most things in terms of like if someone wants me to record with them or to play a show or yeah. So the, the the amount of plate spinning has pretty much always been a thing. Um, and people ask me about like my background, something like is it a jazz background? Is it a classical background? Is it a rock thing? It's like it's all of it mostly centered around like a rock background, but like omnivorously learning from these other things along the way. What appeals to you about, you know, cause we're both people that like, we have our own projects and you're re- you release your own music, but I'd say the majority of the music that both of us play is other people's music. Mm-hmm. What appeals to you about that lifestyle? I love enhancing other people's visions for things. I really like get excited about the process of like figuring out what can make someone else's um, song tick or something that I can do with an instrument that uh, can like nudge it in a certain direction. I think that's just, that's a really fun process for me. And also I don't naturally fit into the role of singer or front person in a band. That's something I'm trying to like, as I'm writing songs starting to be sort of or experimenting with writing songs starting to be uh, grappling with a little more directly, but I'm very comfortable on stage sort of paying attention as a basis, sort of being able to pay attention in all directions. And uh, I don't know. I love that, like that moment where like an ensemble gels together and that's like where all of my attention is as a performer. I think that's, uh, there's something really addicting about that to me. I feel like it's also like our particular choice of musical instruments kind of, pushes us in that direction too you obviously like as a keyboard player and as a pianist you can kind of take the center stage but i think like bass and piano are so malleable and so useful in supporting other people's visions that you kind of inevitably are going to find yourself like helping out a lot of different people if a lot of different people need help you know totally and also i mean it's with keys it's a 
I think I I try to take it like a like a bass playerly approach to keys in terms of like harmonically figuring out where I fit with everything and specifically like I've I've learned a lot over the past few years as I've started to play more keys about like where I what it means for me to sit with vocals and sort of like break out of bass player mode on keys and like figure out how to fill up the upper register like think about like where keys sit in relation to symbols rather than voices. I think that's been a, a cool process recently. You know, a lot of those uh, those folks I mentioned, uh, like John Cale, really excel as arrangers. You know, uh, these these folks who have an ear for avant-garde music and pop, I think their time spent with experimental music really lends um, well to the process of complementing other sounds because you can look at them in a more abstract way. You don't think of it in terms of like, what is my instrument's role? It's just like, what is my instrument's role in this ensemble right now? The improvised music world really challenges you to do that and, and to not think about what your instrument's limited to. And so that makes playing in pop bands with that mindset really fun. Cause you're like, you, you can start to think about ways to imagine an ensemble fitting together that are, possibly more unique. I think that there's like a pretty solid correlation between focusing on the thing that is being made rather than on yourself so much, you know? Right. Like one of the great things about being a a supporting musician is that ultimately your boss is not just the songwriter, but also the song that you're playing. So you have to be entirely concerned with like what's best for this song, not what's best for me at any given moment. And I could totally see how the kind of like the ethos of being entirely tapped in, into like just pure sound and happening sound would facilitate that same kind of s- skill set in uh, in pop contexts too. Yeah, it's like what John, John Cage's whole thing is that like there's no such sound, there's no such thing as the sound of a piano. There's just the sound of this piano or that piano. Like there's no mm-hmm. piano sound. There are sounds of some pianos, and I think that. I mean, that's not a quote, obviously. That's just like, that's like one of the things that I used to par- paraphrase the John Cage philosophy about music is that there's no such thing as like what needs to happen in songs. It's like what needs to happen in this song. And I think that mm-hmm. being a sideman and uh, sort of helping us a composer like zoom out on that process is really fun. Uh, so when it comes to writing the more, you know, you said you're working on writing songs. You did this big song a day project. Where are you taking the songs in that? Like, what direction do you find yourself writing in these days? I think it's hard to um, to say. I don't really... All, like, the things that I write or compositions that I make, I try to not be as, like, uh, genre study as possible. I mean, except with, maybe with the exception of the ambient music. Or even with that, it's like I didn't realize what it was until I was about 95% complete with it. And it's like, oh, this is the type of thing I've been making. I, I, I think the songs I've been writing are definitely just very normal, like, folk songs. I've been thinking a lot about how to use the whole, like, country axiom of, like, three chords in the truth situation to just have a, a minimal amount of chordal movement and focus as much on melody as possible. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I mean, there's a lot of material, and I'm not sure what the uh, destination point is with it. But I'm, I'm, that's like one of the things I'm using this time at home to sort of grapple with is 
what's going on. I will say that I had a really good time writing lyrics for it, as I haven't written, written lyrics in a long time, so I'm trying to figure out which of the sort of stream of consciousness lyrics that came out with that process are keepers or just placeholders, because a lot of them are very honest, but I don't. some of them are like, I don't know. It's like the process with songwriting in general is sometimes it's too saccharine or you don't know where to where to like draw the line between being honest and being oversharing and all this. It's it's a thing I haven't it's a fun thing to think about that I haven't thought about in a long time. So you've played in a lot of different types of music over the course of your life mm-hmm. from at least my intersections uh with your music. Like when we first met, you know, the band that you were in at the time was I would say very complicated and that's kind of not so much the case with a lot of the bands that you play in now. Like, I think I, I feel like you have moved towards more. What band was I in that was complicated? I forget. <laughs> well, it was like Olipo. Oh, when like we first met like years and, and years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that and those, yeah, Olipo was, it was a very hectic band. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like, I'm proud of that stuff. If you, it's still up on Bandcamp. It's like, um, yeah, it's it's definitely the sound of like being nineteen and twenty to twenty one and like really just throwing the whole kitchen sink at it, you know. That it felt good at the time. I think I think it's like it's boring to have this be the answer to it, but I think it is a, like a maturing thing. It's like a you stop talking as much, you know, and you just you start figuring out like, all right, what do I need to say? I think that's like a short answer to it. But yeah, this I I very interested in just like not cluttering the situation as much as possible now. Totally. I also feel like, you know, we've had conversations about the kind of music that we listen to airing more towards at least some degree of simplicity uh, over time. There was a moment where, you know, when we were on tour together last year where we threw on some Mars Volta in the car and both of us just kind of had this like oh no what have we done like, cringe face on the entire time and I still really like that band but yeah. we suddenly had this like realization of like oh this is not you can't just like travel back to being 14 just by you know listening to this tune the way that we expected to right well I think it's like I still I, lo- I love that band. I still love Delos in the Comatorium I think it's a great because that that record has vision there that has like a very concrete like momentum and it's a very well paced album like despite like each individual track being like full of so much stuff it's like everything there had a reason as much as it is embarrassing to I'm not going to like stand by it and say like I still think this is the greatest band ever but like in the context of their catalog that record still rules to me because it has everything f- feels intentional it's mm-hmm. just a question of you know, I feel like some of my earlier bands, it's like there's this need to fill up space that doesn't always like I, I feel like I've just tried to unlearn that um, as I've gotten older. And the same thing with it's I think improvising really helps that, too. It's just like in when you're improvising, there's always this anxiety to be like, oh, no, if I'm not doing something, where's the substance of it? But uh, really key moments happen when you just sort of like let space happen. Um I think that's just the same, like, that just applies across the board. There's no, unless you need it. And I would argue that some of those Volta records, like, they need to be that full on. But uh, it, my boss at the record store really loves Prague, and it's like, I can't, like, especially older Prague stuff, it's just like, why is that time signature? Like, why did you do that? Like, did you just do that to, because you thought about it as a cool idea? Like, this isn't, 
I'm not having a good time hearing this. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely also like around that same like time period, like 19 years old, like going to music school, I had a huge prog phase yeah. and I still do fuck with a lot of that stuff. Right. Although it's f- like certain bands I'll, I'll listen to now and go like, oh, you didn't really know what you were doing. You were just good. Like you were just like skilled, but that didn't like, yeah. that didn't mean that you had like good ideas necessarily, but the best stuff kind of does, you know, you listen to like a song like roundabout and even though it is ridiculous, it does have like some really amazing musical through lines that kind of justify each of the weird turns. That's a catchy song. That's like a great, that's a pop track. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. like, that's like a radio banger and that just happens to be this like sick, I remember I learned that slap that like baseline and I think it's one of the great like baselines <laughs> from the seventies, like that, that like chugging, like, you know, and there's some rush stuff like rush is a goofy ass band, but there's some, like there's some rush songs that I fuck with just because it's the beautiful melody. You know, it's a good, they, they, they had a good song and then there were some great accoutrement from some like great musicians. But mm-hmm. when, when the musicianship is the thing, it's boring as hell to me. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like I, you can actually that this same like arc of get, being very good at the uh, musical instrument and then gradually getting to the point where you're focusing on the songs. Like, you can hear that in Rush's evolution as a band. Totally. Too. Like, you know, I after uh, Neil Peart passed away, I listened to their entire discography like front to back uh, over the course of like a, a few weeks. And it was kind of startling once you got to like the eighties, they were like, Oh shit. They figured out how to like write songs, write songs. <laughs> like, right. You know, you hear a track like subdivisions and you're like, this is the same band that did like by tour and shit like that. Right. Like, this is just like so much smarter about how to use those skills towards actually like expressing an emotion, you know? Right. And I think that, um, you know, this, uh, in the context of like the history of free jazz, I think that, uh, you take someone like Ornette Coleman. I think most people like his like Wikipedia page level contribution to most under people's under like the uh, the Ken Burns jazz uh, level of under Ornette Coleman's under like uh, contribution to the history of jazz is the record Free Jazz, which is where he took two full quartets and panned them hard left and right and put them in different rooms and had them play it with each other and it's like there's a Jackson Pollock painting on the front and it's like defines the style of free jazz but this man had like a whole amazing body of work of orchestral music of great songs there's some great ornette coleman records with vote with a vocalist where there's beautiful lyrics and melodies you know i think that a lot of the best musicians have times where they're like all right here's here's this crazy like let's expand to see let's do an experiment let's have some experimental music happen let's like experiment and see what sticks. But then the best musicians are the ones who say, okay, who actually like track the results of those experiments and say, okay, that was good. Like we took some risks. What, what do we learn from that towards the next project? And I think it's, um, that's what I think you hinted earlier. Like what I think is problematic about the term experimental music is that so many improvisers just play the same song. I'll go to see a group play, and I'll know what it's going to, I'll like be interested in hearing these musicians, but the arc of their composition and the way that it's put together, it will be like a song that I've heard a million times. There's like standard ways for that. And it's like, 
what risks are you actually taking? And, you know, all musicians have to struggle with this. It's like, you can't just find some aesthetic signifiers of saying, I'm a risk taker. You have to actually, like, think about what you're risking or, like, what's at stake with your idea. Absolutely. I think there's, like, a a big commonality there between the scene that you're talking about and, like, heavy metal. Yeah. Which is, like can appear to the outside to always be like super duper challenging and pushing the boundaries of what people are able to listen to and all that. But when you're like living in it for a while, you realize that a lot of people are just like playing it pretty safe, you know? Right. Like cannibal corpse have been around for what, like 30 years now. Yeah. So like playing super like brutal death metal isn't shocking. It's just a way of writing songs. And I think it's that that could also be like a freeing realization in a way because once you realize that like oh i can't just rely on shock value or intensity i actually have to like write music then you can actually start writing good music again totally you know know, full disclosure you play in in my band lamniforms too Mm -hmm. which is you know the namesake of this podcast and I think you can see that that's sort of the direction that I've been going in lately too. Like we're mostly still playing material from Sisyphean, but I, I think like in my next record, it's it's much clearer that I'm not relying just on like browbeating people with slowness and loudness mm. as much. I'm sort of like, okay, how can I use those as you know tools to improve a song instead of being the song themselves? Totally. No, and I think that a lot of the songwriters that I work with, you know, the list currently is you, John Wallace from Colomo, uh, Aaron Dowdy from Fust, uh, Ryan Trolley and Tim Matthews from Putter. And those are like, and Henry from Small Wonder. Those are all people that, it's another thing I love about being a sideman is sort of like being able to throw some sort of wrench in the chain and sort of like help stir along that process too. Like, uh, in terms of the, like, all right, what's, what is having elements that I can provide in the band going to change about the way you think about your next work? And that's, I'm, I feel like I'm in a really exciting zone with that right now with all these different projects is that there's a fuss record that we just finished recording that previously Aaron's work had been completely solo. And, uh, over the last few years we've been playing live shows and working with him on stuff. And so this is the first record that, he, in his mind, thought this is going to be my band record. Like, I'm going to write songs that are going to have, like, this band sound with them. And then, you know, playing keyboards on Oliver's thing, which I hadn't been on the last few records, but after touring, I'm going to be adding to. Um, I don't know. It's cool to see, just have, be around people who are thinking about their work thoughtfully. And I think that's what um, what really excites me about recording projects like this and yeah i don't know it's it's musicians i've regardless of the actual aesthetic style i've always been sort of turned off by any sort of conservatism or the idea that like something doesn't cause momentum that you can do some action and sort of be like the person reacts and stays sort of static i don't i don't like that i don't like working with people like that is there any particular lessons that you've learned from the various songwriters that you've worked with, and you can exclude me for the sake of answering the question, um, <laughs> that you've 
then been able to apply to your own songwriting? I don't think that they're as expl- they will be as explicit until I finish these songs. Um, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of the songwriters, I mean, well, all the songwriters I work with have qualities that I admire, and I've obviously learned a lot about being an instrumentalist through working with them, and, and it's like this interesting, very interesting reciprocal process of 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 that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think just in general, like the work, the themes that we've talked about already about, you know, simplicity, decluttering, uh, directness, like honesty without like self-indulgence. Every one of those folks that I mentioned have qualities along those lines that I admire. So it's, I think it's all sort of coming together in that way. So in addition to being in the performing and recording side of being a musician and being in the music industry. You know, you mentioned you also work at a record store, but you also book tours for other bands and book shows and have, as you said previously, you used to like run a, a show house way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Clearly, do you enjoy that side of the uh, the music industry as well? To be clear, the um, that spot was a was an actual business and was a venue in downtown Asheville. Um, that was my mistake. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's uh, I also have done the show house, show house thing, but the thing that gotcha. Re- I was just mixing the two of those up in my head. I think totally no. It's uh, but yeah, that um, I love that. I mean, I love the idea of, and that's what it like sort of tears me up more than anything about this uh, whole you know epidemic crisis we're living through right now is the um, the fragility of that ecosystem of live venues and the uh, the community aspect of it is 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 really um, yeah, it's it's really unsettling to me the idea that it's so fragile, but at the same time, it's like, it was very resilient. It's a very resilient ecosystem. And I think I have no doubt that the, the DIY network will be able to figure out a way because it already existed. So at the margins of our economy that when our economy collapses, it's hard infrastructure is one of the first things to go, but there's always been a sort of high wire that it's dangling on that, uh, you know, I think I I have, I'm, I have faith that it will recover because I definitely do have love it and I have a lot of faith in it. I like booking tours. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, it's really <laughs> I find it really fascinating to be able to. Uh, so it's I, I've been trying to limit my uh, labor in that way, but it's um I mostly work and sort of manage uh, this songwriter Kath Bloom, who I encourage everyone to check out her work. Uh, we are working on a record of hers. It's going to come out. In August, on this label, Dear Life Records, which uh, is run by Michael, who plays drums in Friendship, great band, and who are also big friends and fans of Kath. She sort of came up into prominence, resurged into prominence uh, in the last 15 years or so through her appearance. She had a, a song prominently featured in the Linklater film Before Sunrise. And she's a, been a huge, like, sort of silent influence on people that I love, like uh, Will Oldham, Mark Kozlik, Bill Callahan, Josephine Foster have all been involved in tributes to her to the in the past. And um, I sort of got hooked into booking tours through working with these sort of older, like, old guard, like, sort of forgotten figures like her. I've booked tours for uh, Occam Rodelius, who's sort of, Eno claim Brian Eno claims that he's like the true father of ambient music. I've I booked a U.S. tour for him. I worked with this uh, amazing artist Lonnie Holly on booking some stuff. And the tours that I mentioned that got canceled were for Kath and for this great band Sun Watchers from uh, New York. That's sort of like a psych jazz uh, crossover band, uh, psych rock jazz. 
crossover band. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's something really great about the feeling of being able to, when you're booking a tour, like construct a bill that really says something about the artists that you're working with, and being able to find connections in these communities and really get to explore different parts of America through the process of putting a tour together. And in terms of hosting the shows, like something feels really good about being able to make something happen and facilitate for people and to like see a room fill up for a show you've booked. Or if it that wasn't the point of the show, if the in terms of the amount of people, then to just have a good night and to meet I've gotten to meet some amazing, amazing people that I would not be able to meet otherwise if I hadn't uh made myself available to do those things. So something I care very much about. How did you get started working on that side of the industry? Just through always being the point person for it in my own band, sort of naturally. It's just like fits my personality in terms of wanting to just get things done and really to just, I've just prioritized it for a long time. And then after Apothecary closed, I kept booking shows in Asheville. And then after I was done in Asheville, I moved back home to Raleigh for a few years uh, because I worked for, I still worked for a, a festival in Raleigh called Hopscotch. So there were some opportunities to pursue there, but I ended up being a talent buyer at a venue called Kings. And through Kings, the the guy who preceded me as the talent buyer at Kings went on to be the main talent buyer for Ad Hoc in New York. And so I've worked for Ad Hoc as a manager, a show manager, like somebody who goes and show, uh, just settles the shows. Uh, no booking involved, but a pretty tight relationship with the office there in terms of suggestions I can make and stuff. Yeah, it's just sort of like a natural flow of it. I think that most people in this industry, in that side of the industry, it's just the story is pretty similar. You sort of stumble into it because no one else is doing it or you see a hole that, you know, your friends hit you up enough times about booking a show. This is what happened to me in Asheville. I had enough friends through that I met through playing with Olipo that were like, hey, I need a show in Asheville and had no answer. So started a DIY space. Growing up in New York, Definitely, I went to some DIY spots, but I never could set one up. I never set one up myself. Oh, but yeah. I'm always fascinated by like the ins and outs and like daily process of like what what is it like to live basically in a music venue? Well, the house show situation. I never really lived for an extended time in a like the house I was living in in Asheville had shows, but they were very occasional. The DIY space that mm-hmm. I ran that was like five nights a week hosting shows was was a business, like a, a, a corner store space that we were renting out. Mm-hmm. That was a specific moment in time that is impossible and I for me to replicate because it was, I think I had 10 people all living in a house. Our rent was something like 200 each and we all would pool extra money to help recoup like lo- any losses that we had towards rent on the space each month. Because we were all living so cheaply, but I definitely did. Like, so in that sense, we did, in that time we all we did live in it because everyone who lived in that house was a key holder at the space, and so it's funny we would all live in the same house, but then we would like to have meetings about the space. We would go there just to have some sort of separation about like when we were working on apothecary and when we were at home, like being roommates. Totally. But it's different for everybody, and I think that. No one has a complete anyone. No one that I've talked to who's been involved in running a DIY space has like a completely like rosy 
memory of the experience it's extremely stressful but it's like it's it's really fun i i don't know there's nothing like it it's like very high risk high reward no financial reward but just complete uh like satisfaction in the success yeah i think that there's a you know if i was writing the uh the very like hacky journalist piece about this like even the act of in the same way that we were talking about like improvisation or being a supporting musician in a band or running a space like this it's all like you have to be doing it for the music itself or you're not going to be good at it right you know? yeah exactly i mean it, it i but i also have been lucky enough to to work with a few for-profit businesses that have managed to put that at the forefront you know uh, mm-hmm. kings and raleigh is owned by musicians and it's it's set up to be a business and that shows, I think. I think the, the I think the for profit businesses or venues that are working well are run in some way by artists. Or and that's not to exclude all of my like great friends who are solely music industry people, but I think having a mind for that or like a curational mind. That, which I think is its own art form. I think that people don't dis- people discount that sometimes. I think that the bookers who are really good, it's an art. You know, you have to be able to see connections between, you know, constructing a bill. Like you have to be able to see connections between bands that aren't necessarily apparent to make a great aesthetic pairing. But yeah, it's simply not like there. There are much easier ways to make money. <laughs> so you should probably do if you're interested in making money. Like you should do something else. But like. Yeah, well, the other way to look at it is, like, if you are the kind of person that can do this passionately, you can apply those skills in some way or another. Like, the point that you're making that, like, it is possible for musicians to, like, get good at this and to take it seriously. And, like, a, a venue like King's is a perfect example of the result of that kind of that kind of approach. Totally. If I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, and it's also sort of like King's, the history of it is... Um you know, they, they were musicians who worked avid touring musicians and they didn't, they were tired of people asking them about Raleigh and not having a good solution. So they opened a bar and the current incarnation of it is, you know, so it's, they've celebrated their 20th year, 10th year at the current location, 20 years as a thing in Raleigh. And it's, it really is the center of that, that ecosystem to, to me. And it's in New York too. I mean, there's, it's harder and harder in New York especially now. Um, and I'd be interested to see what happens on the other end of this thing to see what's, what's possible in the city anymore. But yeah, there's definitely ways to apply and there's definitely good ways to get paid. I definitely decided at a certain point before moving here that like, I'm, I'm a musician, I'm pursuing being a musician, but I'd know how to make a little extra money in the industry and how to connect some dots for people. And that's pretty much all I'm trying to do. Hell yeah. I mean, those skills are going to be more important than ever once we get up back on the other side of, of this COVID shit. Like, yeah, I feel like the music industry is really, you know, you can already tell like the things that are happening just online right now of people trying to find the best way to to help each other and to buy each other's records and to support each other. And it's that kind of like true networking and like community building that is going to build this thing from the ground up again and make it work again once we're able to start hitting the road, you know? Totally. And, um, you know, I think just to, just to wrap up the idea of talking about the record store, I mean, that's another reason that I'm attracted to, like, it's not necessarily about the nature of the business you're running or 
what the actual like profit machine is to keep it operational. I think that the businesses that will continue to survive in some form in the arts after this are the ones that have put in the groundwork of understanding what their broader support system is and who they're like, what their community they're serving is. And I'm, I'm really proud that Bruce, that's like the entire reason his store was even open in the first place is because I mean, you're selling free jazz CDs. Like you're not doing that because like, that's the way to take it to the bank. It's like, this is just what we need to do. And you know, you do that for long enough and people start to see you as, as necessary. And I, hopefully, you know, these organizations that have put in that work are able to come out on the other, other end of this, uh, healthy along those same lines i hope you stay healthy too i think we should probably start wrapping this up uh but thank you so much for uh taking the time to talk and uh yeah yeah i'm sure i'm sure we'll we'll talk again soon you know all, all we have is time at the moment so totally I'll, I'll yeah i definitely see you around yeah cool good luck with everything and thanks for uh thanks for doing this again and we've got i feel like you know um sorry the last conversation was lost but the fact that there's there's we've had a lot to talk about so um absolutely well, thanks again. Talk right, to man, you later. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Frank, for joining me today. You can find Frank's music at frankmeadows.bandcamp.com. You can find more episodes of Lambdaforms Radio on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lambdaforms-sounds or on the iTunes podcast app. And you can follow me on Twitter at lambdaforms underscore or on Instagram at Ian K. Corey. More episodes soon. Until next time. Look at all the pieces.